Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 301. It's titled, Use Caution with Alternative Investments. In 2002 to 2003, my family and I had recently moved to Idaho. I set up a one-person office. I was still with my institutional investment advisory firm. Our firm had just sold to a bank, owned a very small percentage, about 2% at the time. I left our executive committee. I was working on developing an asset management platform, but I also agreed to co-found and lead a direct alternative investment research team at our firm. What are alternative investments? They are investments outside of the realm of traditional publicly available asset classes, like stocks, bonds, REITs, and cash. Originally, most alternative investments were private opportunities, not available to the general public. Usually, they were structured as limited partnerships, where there was a general partner selecting the underlying investments. These limited partnerships have terms typically about 10 to 12 years or more. The investor commits a certain amount of capital or money to the partnership, and then the general partners call that money over the next four to five years as they identify investment opportunities. An example of an alternative investment is venture capital, in which a partnership invests in startup companies. Alternative investments include private equity, in which the partnership invests in more established companies, often taking publicly traded companies private in a leveraged buyout. Real assets are another category of alternative investment. Real assets include private investments in the energy space, oil and gas, renewable energy, timber, and farmland. Distressed debt is an alternative investment in which a manager purchases debt of a company nearing bankruptcy with the aim of participating in and profiting from the restructuring of the company after it enters bankruptcy. There are other private lending strategies that are considered alternative investments. Private real estate can be considered an alternative investment, as are collectibles such as art. It's a very, very broad category, and there isn't one specific definition, but generally private opportunities outside of the traditional public markets. Now, prior to 2002, our investment firm only recommended fund of funds to our clients. A fund of funds is a structure in which the investor commits capital to a limited partnership, and then the general partner invests that money in seven or more other limited partnerships in the alternative investment arena, such as private equity, venture capital, real estate, or real assets. Fund of funds exist so investors can get adequate diversification by participating in hundreds of startup investments, leveraged buyouts, and real asset opportunities. It's the primary way that I participate in alternative investments. I invest in four of the funds that my former investment firm manages. Fund of funds exist so investors can get adequate diversification by participating in hundreds of deals, startup investments, leveraged buyouts, real asset opportunities. If you're a $50 million endowment and many of the premier partnerships have minimum investments of $10 million or more, it's difficult to build out a diversified alternative investment program. And that's where a fund of funds can help. Often they have relationships so they can access the premier partnerships. 
but they also make it easier for smaller endowments and foundations to participate in the alternative investment class. In that 2002-2003 period, our investment firm decided that we wanted to be able to, for our larger endowment and foundation clients, recommend specific limited partnerships so they could go direct and take out a layer of fees with the fund of funds. We needed to up our game, to become even more familiar with alternative investment strategies. In addition to helping to lead the team and build out the team as we hired, I agreed to step up and be our firm's timber analyst to conduct due diligence on timber investment management organizations. I knew nothing about timber investing, so I started traveling around the country, learning from and conducting due diligence on timber investment management organizations, visiting tree farms, trying to decide who were the premier partnerships. Because one of the things in the alternative investment space is there can be a big performance disparity between the top performing firms and those that don't do as well. Often it's because they have access to deal flow, better opportunities. One of the timber firms I visited was in Atlanta. And I remember the founder of the firm was a little frustrated because the typical limited partnership was 10 to 12 years. But he said the ideal holding time for timber was 25 years or more to give the trees more time to grow. The longer the trees are in the ground, the bigger they get and the more, men, the more money you make, the higher your return. And I realized that oftentimes the desire of investors for a structure might not be what's best to maximize the return for the asset class. That's one reason Harvard, which has been a big participant in timber over the years, at least back then, they would just buy tree farms directly and plan on holding them for 50 years. From my experience in the alternative investment space, there are five things I have found determine the investment returns. It's the access to deal flow and the premier managers. Second is how much capital is flowing into the area. One of the things we found in timber is a lot of other institutions decided they wanted to invest in timber. That was great for the timber investment management organizations, but it also pushed up the price of forest land, particularly those that could be harvested over a 10 to 12 year time frame, which meant the returns were much lower. The structure and terms of the transaction of the partnership is very important. How much are you paying? Oftentimes the fees can be very expensive. One and a half to 2% management fee plus a percent of the profits, often above some particular hurdle rate or minimum return. A fourth component is the incentives. How much skin in the game does the general partner have? Are they investing alongside their limited partners? That's critical so that the incentives are aligned and there's not conflicts of interest. And the exit strategy. How will limited partners get their money back? The underlying investments, will they be going public? Will they be sold to other companies? That's also a big component. And finally, just understanding the deal, the documents of the limited partnership. I spent hours reviewing documents and reviewing detailed research reports by our analysts as they sought to identify the premier partnerships and understand the investments. It takes work to invest in the alternative investment space. And the only reason to do it is because you're going to benefit from higher returns than you might get in the public markets. You earn an illiquidity premium for having some of your capital tied up in a private illiquid investment. Three or four years into this process, 
my orthodontist approached me about a private investment that he had. It was a startup company. He had invested a big portion of his net worth in just one company, at least $100,000. And now the founders were seeking more capital. I went to my orthodontist home and we went through the investment and I told him, don't put more money in. He just had one deal. And you contrast that with institutions that have exposure to hundreds and hundreds of deals. Most of my private capital exposure in my portfolio comes through fund of funds. They're in dozens of limited partnerships, which are in turn invested in dozens and dozens of deals. Very, very diversified, as opposed to one deal. And that's important because there's been some regulatory changes in the U.S. that has opened up alternative investments to more individuals. The Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act of 2012 made it possible for companies to use crowdfunding to raise equity. Now, there's some limits in terms of the amount, but it also has opened the way that there's dozens and dozens of alternative investment platforms pitching to individuals to invest from farmland to art to startups to real estate. Most of these, you need to be an accredited investor, which means you have annual income in the U.S. of $200,000 as an individual or $300,000 for joint income and expect to continue to earn that amount. Or you need to have a net worth of at least $1 million. I have participated in some of these platforms. I've recommended them. I've taken them on as sponsors. Wonder Capital, Peer Street, C-Note, Masterworks. But I've only done so if I also invested on the platform, participated in deals, went through the sign-up process, understood the risk, and made sure that I invested more money on those platforms than I was receiving in sponsorships. Now, there's been other platforms that I've participated in that, that I didn't take as sponsors. But one of those first ones, Wonder Capital, they were a sponsor for a couple years, they assisted businesses in buying solar panels. So they lent money. About a year and a half into the partnership, they, they stopped sponsoring the podcast. It was instructive the reason why. It went well, but they found that it was more economical and easier just to raise capital from institutions as opposed to try to raise it from individuals, which raises a huge question when it comes to all these alternative investment platforms. There has been an institutional framework for decades for startups, for buyouts, for real assets, real estate, to raise large sums of capital to invest. And if that's the case, why would an investor go to one of these alternative investment platforms and try to raise money from retail investors? Often it's because the institutional players passed on the opportunity, or maybe it was too small, but it should raise some red flags to understand, well, why, why are they on that platform? Why didn't they go to an endowment of foundation or a premier fund of funds to raise capital for the particular opportunity? It is not the best of the best deals that end up on these platforms. I want to share three examples of alternative investments on these platforms and what I learned from them as a word of caution. The first I've talked about before, it was my first crowdfunding platform that I participated in. It was Acquire Real Estate. I invested $20,000 in a Boston hotel and restaurant property. It did not go well. I had a lot of detail, surprisingly amount of transparency on the deal. 
projections in terms of what they thought the property would do each year, the improvements they're making, they fell well short of those expectations. They were losing money big time. But the main problem is Acquire Real Estate sold their platform to Realty Shares. So Acquire, which had identified the deal, wasn't involved. None of those principles were around anymore, even though the hotel property wasn't doing so well. And then Realty Shares shut down. They couldn't raise enough money and closed. Now, fortunately, in this case, the hotel management company, the owners were able to sell the hotel property and I got my money back. But I realized there's a huge lack of transparency when it comes to the platforms themselves, whether they will be around in five to six years to service the deal. These platforms typically don't co-invest with you. They do not have skin in the game like a traditional limited partnership would where the general partner is investing alongside the limited partners. Now that deal worked out. Here's one that didn't. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. In episode 251, I discussed impact investing. One of the first rules is don't do harm. And I was looking at an opportunity on the Yield Street platform. I had done three or four deals on Yield Street, debt deals where I was lending money. It was a limited partnership structure. There was a security interest in the property. I didn't have good transparency on Yield Street itself, nor did I have good transparency with regard to who the borrowers were. They wouldn't even name the borrowers. So there was a, a large amount of trust there, but because of the structure, and these were very short-term in nature, and they weren't payment-dependent notes, I had a security interest in the limited partnership, which had a security interest in the property. I went through with the deal, and they worked out fine. But this was new. This was what's known as vessel deconstruction. It was a loan, a six-month loan to an organization that would buy cargo ships and take them to breakdown yards where they would be turned into scrap and recycled. Yield Street raised $89 million in these particular deals. They had a 16-page memo that I reviewed, and there was risk involved. But they mentioned that a Dubai company had given a corporate guarantee and that the family members that had been in the business for decades had provided guarantees that these loans were secured by the ships. I was going to do it. But then I started reading more about the ship deconstruction process and realized that it's extremely hazardous and that there are many shipyards, these breakdown yards, that don't provide sufficient safety. And so I tried to get more clarity as to whether the particular family buying the ships was going to use Hong Kong Convention compliant yards. And I couldn't get that transparency, so I, I passed. It hasn't worked out. All six loans have defaulted. Yield Street is accusing the borrowers and the sub-advisor of fraud. They couldn't find the ships. I have members of Money for the Restless Plus that participated in these deals and are worried because their investment potentially is at risk. Yield Street alleges that the Lacani family faked company filings in order to conceal that Yield Street had a security interest in the ships and then they sold them and they've kept the money. And it's going to be ongoing litigation to figure out where the ships are. Can they get their money? And it's unfortunate. There is risk in alternative investments, which makes it challenging because, you know, many of these deals, the minimum investments tend to $30,000. And again, you don't get complete transparency. Final example is just recently, I had a farmland 
platform approached me about wanting to sponsor the podcast. I looked through them, I looked through the deals, and I thought, yeah, I think that seems, I've invested in farmland before, I own farmland, pretty straightforward. But I said, I'm only going to do it if I invest on the platform. So I started going through a deal. It was a sublease of a, a nut farm in the Pacific Northwest. And it went through all the documentation, and I was, we're going to invest in a seven-year sublease. I believe the yield was about 8%. Then after filling out all the documents, there was no sublease in the documents. I couldn't see the lease agreement. So I went to the platform and said, where's the sublease? And they said they, they don't typically provide that to the investors, but they'll make an exception. I thought, what? That, that's what we're investing in, the sublease. We ought to be able to see that. So I read through the sublease. I got comfortable. And it said, in the case of default, the terms of the lease apply. Well, I didn't even have the original lease. And so my biggest concern is, what happens if things don't go right for this? How are they going to exit it? What if the original sponsor that agreed to buy back this sublease at the end of seven years decides not to or defaults? I just couldn't get comfortable with the documentation. And as a result, I, I didn't take them as a sponsor. So the documentation is extremely important. Now, I am a proponent of alternative investments. My return expectations are modest. If I can earn an internal rate of return of 8% on my private capital investments, I would be content. But one of the challenges is this is not like institutional alternative investing. You do not get the level of transparency. You do not get the co-investment by the platform. They do not have skin in the game. And you have no idea on their financial standing, whether they're going to be around in a few years, because many of them are themselves venture capital-backed enterprises. So if you're going to participate, you do need a diversification of deals. Or you need to go into a specific deal and recognize there's loss potential there, huge losses. And scale your exposure to where if you lost all the money, you would be fine. Please read through the documents. Get as much transparency as you can. What are the liquidity provisions? What are the fees? What is the structure? One reason I stopped investing on Yield Street is they got rid of the ability to invest in the specific limited partnership where you had security interest, and they went to a payment contingent note structure where the agreement is with Yield Street, then Yield Street gets paid, and then they pass that on to the investors. So your investment is really with Yield Street, an unsecured security interest. That's not a structure that I'm comfortable with. A final thing to consider is who is recommending the platform? What is their incentives? In the personal finance blogging space, there are a lot of different articles on alternative investments recommending specific platforms. Often it's unclear whether that particular blogger has participated in, invested in, has an understanding of the particular alternative investment opportunity. They write the articles to educate, but they also receive a commission if you use their link to join the platform. An affiliate relationship. Now, I think affiliates are fine as long as they're disclosed, but you need to go in and recognize that there is a conflict there. If they're recommending something and they're getting paid for it. I have the same conflict. I do an ad for an investment opportunity. 
I get paid for that ad. I try to mitigate that conflict by investing in the platform, putting my money in specific deals and try to be upfront about the risk. Masterworks, art investing, done several ads for them. And I've mentioned this is a speculation. The return depends on somebody wanting to buy this Monet seven years down the road for more than the price you paid. So pay attention then to the incentives. Are there conflicts? Why are they recommending it? Do they have skin in the game? Read through the documents very carefully. Understand the risk of the deal, the fees, the structure, the exit strategy. How are you going to get out? And recognize you need diversification of deals. That's how institutions do it. It's more difficult to do via these platforms. But if you don't have diversification, recognize that's concentrated risk and you could lose your investment. That then is episode 301. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is an email I send out each Wednesday when I, after I release the podcast. It contains links to the resources I discussed in that week's episode, as well as an essay on money investing in the economy. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money investing and the economy. Have a great week.